now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Hey there, welcome to another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. I'm your host, Cam Edwards. Glad that you're with us for this week. Uh, Let's see, we're going to be talking about driverless cars and how they might impact the near frontier and beyond actually a a pretty interesting story from a a website i had never heard about uh, until this week plus uh a trip to monticello and the bookstore there which was uh full of bad decisions i made on my part by the way did not come away with some stellar reading material this time you'd think in monticello too but uh, And we'll get to uh, your thoughts as well. The email address, as always, is 40acrefool at gmail.com. You can also follow along on Instagram at Cam Edwards and on Twitter at Cam Edwards. Facebook, uh, which honestly, I haven't been Facebooking much lately. I do apologize for that. But it is uh, facebook.com slash Cam Edwards 2A. It's just too much social media. But uh, that's a common complaint with me. All right. So this week on the farm, it's uh, it's actually been really, really good. It's been a pretty interesting week here. Uh, since we spoke last on 40 Acres and a Fool, we've had a visit to the NRA News Cam and Company Studios, uh, our very first llama visit. We've had a lot of uh, big name guests come through here. My friend Ron Bellin from uh, Reaper Outdoors uh, joined us uh, this week as well. But uh, Mushu the Llama came by uh, last Friday, I think it was. And uh, Mushu's owner, uh, Greg Hall from North Carolina, brought Mushu over to help promote the Duskin and Stevens Beef and Beer Benefit, which is uh, taking place in Piners, North Carolina, May 21st. Uh, most of you will have uh, probably already missed it by the time you hear this. But you can still help the Duskin and Stevens Foundation, which provides scholarships and opportunities for the uh, children of our uh, fallen soldiers and military families. Uh, it's a great organization. It's named after Big Mike Duskin, Riley Stevens, uh, two of our warriors who lost their lives in Wardak Province, Afghanistan. Their teammates, their friends, uh, and their families came together and, and started the Duskin and Stevens Foundation. So this is a organization that is near and dear to the hearts of the people who uh, who work on it. The Duskin and Stevens Beef and Beer Benefits, one of the uh, the big fundraising events that they have. So I'm um, looking forward to going down there. And uh, Greg was there last year with uh, his llama, providing llama uh, cart rides and llama pictures. And Greg's going again, and he's donating all the money that he raises to the Duskin and Stevens Foundation. Just a, just a great guy. I mean, really, came three hours with Mushu the llama uh, to, to tape an interview and uh, hang out. So I was really honored uh, and privileged to... Uh, to see Greg this week, and and really, I just want to take the opportunity again to say thank you to Greg for taking the time to do that. We, I, we really do have the best company, I think, uh, of any uh, program out there. I think the community, the Cam and Company community, is just the strongest. It is the just the biggest of heart, uh, and it is it's always just an awesome experience when I get a chance to uh, to meet people who are a part of the show like that. So thank you, Greg. Uh, on the farm, it has also been. A good week. I noticed last night as I was down in the garden, the first tomatoes on the plants. Okay, now they're from the plants that we bought, not the plants that we started from seed. But so what? So what? The bloody butchers that we got at the uh, farmer's market in Scottsville, Virginia, 
now have uh, a few of the plants actually have some small green tomatoes and soon we'll be picking them and eating them and it's going to be fantastic this is the time of year that i i i really really start to enjoy um all of the gardening and you know the, the hard work is starting to pay off uh this time of year and even the not so hard work is starting to pay off this time of year the blueberries are are full on the the bushes that we have they're still green just a maybe just a hint of uh, blue at the top of the blueberries right now but in a couple of weeks we'll be spending probably a good uh, 20 30 minutes a day picking blueberries we actually uh, we we put them on cereal we put them in yogurt we have been pancakes last year we had a lot of blueberries on ice cream uh and we still ended up with a lot of blueberries in our freezer enough blueberries actually to last us all winter long whenever we felt like and we want a little taste of summer. We could pull out some of the frozen blueberries. That 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 was nice. That's been one of the really interesting, I think, and in, uh, in, in cool experiences over the last couple of years is saving food uh, and canning food. And you know, when you walk into your pantry and it's the depths of winter, and you still have summer in a jar in the form of tomato sauce or tomato paste, or you can open up that freezer and you can. You know, sprinkle a little summer on your uh, cereal there in the depths of winter. I just, I, I love it. It, uh, it's a really great experience. And the only thing that's better, food wise, uh, is getting to enjoy this stuff. You know, straight from the garden, right there in the, uh, in the the heat of the summer when you pick the tomato off the plant and you just take a bite out of it, or you maybe you know rinse it off with the garden hose first. Uh, same with the blueberries because you don't know what's been on them but uh when you just get that first bite and the sun's beaten down and it's just been picked that i think that is the penultimate moment but uh pulling out that that little bit of summer in the depths of winter that's a a very close second so the tomatoes are on their way um we have uh, cucumbers that we planted they're starting to sprout now all of the tomatoes for the most part are are in the ground uh, and I, the ones that are there now are doing quite well. The potatoes are doing fantastic. Actually, we're straw mulching the potatoes. Uh, when you plant potatoes, you know, you'll get the leaves and then you've got to continue mounding something on top of the potatoes. Otherwise, uh, the the potatoes will come up to the surface and you won't be able to, to eat them. Uh, so you can put more dirt, more layers of dirt. And that's what we actually did the first time we grew tomatoes. We just kept mounding dirt on there. And towards the uh, uh, end of the summer and into the early fall, when we started collecting the potatoes, we had a really big pile here. Now, keep in mind, we were already using raised garden beds, but it's probably a, a good uh, two and a half feet worth of dirt that we had layered on. So uh, this time around, we're straw mulching. So we put a layer of straw down on each of the beds of potatoes uh, to cover it up again. And then we'll uh, just, you know, keep an eye on it. Might have to put uh, more straw down here uh, before long. But the potatoes are looking well. We've thinned out our carrot beds. Uh, so the carrots are doing fantastic. I'm really excited about that because over the past two years, we've tried to grow carrots. Two years in a row and two years in a row, it's not that they haven't come up with, but we've not had what I would consider to be a a robust uh, crop of carrots. Maybe three or four of one variety, maybe two or three of another. 
Uh, last year, we made the mistake of planting our pumpkins and squash right next to the beds of carrots, and very quickly the pumpkin and squash vines consumed the uh, carrot beds. So that was sort of a wash. But uh, they're doing great this year. Uh, the only thing that we're having trouble with, besides the tomatoes that uh, that didn't make it, the garlic that we planted uh, early on. We planted onions and garlic and beets uh, about the same time. The onions are doing fantastic. The beets are great. I think they're uh, ready to, the, the greens are certainly ready to go, but uh, I think we probably have another couple of weeks before we uh, start to harvest the, the beets themselves. But in between these great beds of healthy crops, all of a sudden we've got this empty patch with a couple of weeds forlornly poking out. And there are a couple of shoots of garlic, but they really aren't doing anything. So I have no idea what we did wrong uh, with our garlic this spring, but we did not apparently do something right. So I got to go back and uh, do more research. But that's the that's the one thing that we've planted that really hasn't cooperated. I'm curious to know how your garden is going as well, and if uh, you have any surprising successes, any uh, unanticipated failures of vegetables and if you've got any advice on garlic please let me know i'd love to hear it all right when we come back here in this edition of 40 acres and a fool we're going to talk about this story from a website called route 50 on the impact of driverless cars and trucks on small towns across the country stick around we've got more 40 acres and a fool coming up right after this 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Could there be some combustion involved? <laughs> the pumping, I'm not sure they get the difference between combustion and pump action. That's, it is a simulated firearm, a water gun, a squirt gun, a squirt pistol. It's simulated firearm. You is like it, to be shot with? A, you uncut? like to be shot with a water pistol? I don't mind being on a hot summer day with my friends. Hell yeah! The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip, weekday mornings six to nine Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks again for being a part of the 40 Acres and a Fool podcast, courtesy of the Blaze Radio Network. I'm Cam Edwards, coming to you from Farmville, Virginia, or uh, not far outside of Farmville. All right. I saw this story uh, earlier this week. I think it was at hotair.com. I think I've got to give uh, Ed Morrissey and the folks over there credit for uh, pointing the story out from the website Route 50. What will happen to truck stop towns when driverless truck technology expands? Michael Grass poses this really interesting question. So we just saw uh, in Nevada, actually, the first driverless truck hit the streets. Uh, Now, this is a test, obviously, but, um, you know, moving forward, uh, certainly there are a lot of uh, uh, people who really like pushing the idea of driverless vehicles. I don't know how you feel about it. I like driving. I really like driving. I've always enjoyed road trips. My first road trip uh, behind the wheel of a car, I was, let's see, this was the summer before my senior year of high school, uh, and I took my 73 Dodge Dart 
east on I-40 to Memphis, Tennessee, and Rhodes College to the uh, Rhodes College Writing Program. And, uh, yep, drove myself from uh, Oklahoma to Memphis at the uh, age of, I think I had just turned 17. Just turned 17. I still remember driving through this ferocious rainstorm in Little Rock, Arkansas, and my windshield wipers, again, on my 73 Dodge Dart, um, went out. The motor died (laughs) in the middle of a driving rainstorm. Uh, Somehow, I managed to pull over to the side of the road, waited for the rain to pass, continued on my way to Memphis, had a good time. Uh, and, And really, ever since then, I have loved to drive. I can't imagine sitting in a car and not being behind the wheel for eight or nine hours, just letting some uh, automated technology do the driving for me. So I got to say, I'm not a fan of driverless cars uh, or driverless trucks. I know that my uh, road warrior friends are not fans of uh, driverless trucks, but there are a lot of fans of the uh, driverless vehicles. And so this piece at Route 50 talks about how this could change small towns if you if the trucking industry itself changes. Uh, Grass talks about uh, this little town in Nebraska, Roscoe, Nebraska. It sits off of Interstate 80, but it's not right there on Interstate 80. Uh, and it's not far away from Ogallala. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I, I don't know my Nebraska names as well as I know my Oklahoma town names. And Ogallala is where you find the uh, the hotels and the the, the you know travel uh, plazas and things like that. Roscoe uh, has sort of died out. It used to be on the Lincoln. It is still on the Lincoln Highway, which was one of the first highways uh, in the country. And there are a lot of small towns that were on these uh, main arteries before the interstates that just sort of dried up. When I went out to Columbus, Ohio, I think this was last year for the uh, Buckeye Firearms Buckeye Bash in Columbus, I decided to drive because, again, I like road trips. So my wife, Missy, and I uh, drove from Central Virginia through West Virginia into Ohio. It was a beautiful drive. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, And on the way home, Sunday morning, we're uh, we're driving south, and I said, let's just stay off the interstates as long as we can because I I like the back roads. And we ran across a sign for the Bob Evans Homestead. Bob Evans, the sausage guy. I'm like, well, we got to go, right? Uh, So we go, and it's the original – it's it's his house. It's where he lived, and it's the very first Bob Evans restaurant. It's right there. And the highway that – and again, it's a, it's 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 out in the middle of nowhere, Rio Grande, Ohio, um, and there's really not much around. But back at the time when Bob Evans was uh, first opened up his restaurant, this was in the uh, late '40s after World War II. That was a very very busy highway. The interstate came along, and uh, the traffic that was on the highway, you know, died out. Uh, thankfully. For all of us who like sausage, Bob Evans adjusted and found his niche in uh, refrigerated meat. So thank you, Bob Evans. Uh, but we've seen these sort of disruptions before. 
The difference is that those were disruptions of uh, of place, right? A town may lose uh, traffic and may lose visitors because all of a sudden now there's a bigger highway that's opened up, uh, you know, 15, 10 miles away. This is a disruption of scale that we're talking about here because we're we're the roads aren't changing. But the idea is that they're going to be fewer and fewer people on them. Uh, this piece at, at Route 50 uh, quotes Scott Sandens, a New Orleans based writer, blogger who focuses on the intersection of poverty, inequality and technological advancement. Uh, about the looming one-two punch to America's gut. Said we're facing the decimation of entire small-town economies, a disruption the likes of which we haven't seen since the construction of the interstate highway system itself bypassed entire towns. He says those working in these restaurants and motels along truck-driving routes are also consumers with their own local economies. Think about what a server spends her paycheck and tips on in her own community and what a motel maid spends her earnings, uh, spends from her earnings into the same community. That spending creates other paychecks in turn. So now we're not only talking about millions more who depend on truck drivers, but we're also talking about entire small town communities full of people who depend on all of the above in more rural areas. With any amount of reduced consumer spending, those local economies will shrink. He talks about Nebraska, uh, uh, the uh, Ben Grass, the uh, Route 50 author. He says, according to the Nebraska Trucking Association, the trucking industry employs one out of every 12 workers in the state, roughly 63,000 jobs. Uh, more than 48% of Nebraska communities rely on trucks to move their goods. Now, he says driverless trucks will still need to refuel on their cross-country treks, but advances in technology will, in time, reduce the need to have as many humans involved in the trucking industry. And Sandin says, while there's still a lot of testing ahead for autonomous driving technology in the trucking industry, it's a question of when, not if, major disruption is coming for communities that depend on trucking. He says, we're looking at a window of massive disruption starting somewhere between 2020 and 2030. Now, when you get out to predicting the future, of course, there's always the chance that you're wrong. But again, it does seem pretty clear that there are a lot of people with a lot of money who really do like the idea of driverless cars and who are pushing this very, very hard. So the idea that this could come to pass uh, and will come to pass is certainly not inconceivable. The question then becomes, what happens to these small towns? Uh, Can some of them find a way to hang on? A lot of them probably won't. But there are, it should be noted already, uh, a, a lot of these small towns around the country that have gone through a similar disruption. Again, it might have been a disruption in space, not in, in scale, but uh, they've gone through this. And so maybe one idea for these small towns around the country, if they're fearing uh, the impact of this, is to look at what uh, uh, other towns were able to do, uh, again, along the Lincoln Highway, along uh, Highway 15, which runs uh, through Farmville, as a matter of fact, all the way. And Farmville sort of in the middle. Highway 15 is one of the, uh, the, the oldest original highways out there as well. Uh, it starts way up, if you're, if you're starting in the north anyway, uh, it starts way up in uh, southern New York, goes all the way down to northern Georgia. Uh, and one of these days, this is going to be my road trip. I'm actually going to drive uh, all of uh, Highway 15. But look at some of these towns and how they've adapted and adopted. The, now, a lot of them haven't adapted and adopted very well. 
Uh, so there is, I think, a real concern that, you know, this type of technology, this type of uh, automation, this type of this this type of disruption uh, in scale could lead to a lot of small towns becoming ghost towns. And a lot of those uh, people who lived there and who raised families there and maybe were a third or fourth, fifth generation resident of that town, they're going to have to go where the jobs are. And they won't be where they've lived. That's a cheery note. Maybe the robot truck factories can be made in these uh, towns. Maybe that's the answer for these small towns. All right, when we come back here on 40 Acres and a Fool, my trip to Monticello and the uh, bad luck I had at picking out good books. Stick around. We'll be right back with more right after this. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Salcedo. While we tried to make sure that they were protected, we also gave those who wished to destroy space to do that as well. Baltimore's left-wing mayor taking a lot of heat for reportedly giving the stand-down order to cops, allowing the riots to take hold in Baltimore. Here's something wild and crazy. Why not focus on protecting your citizens instead? Chris Salcedo. Saturdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards returns now on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to 40 Acres and a Fool. Still to come on the program, I'm going to uh, check in with the mailbag, and uh, I've already taken a peek. It's good to hear from some old friends as well as some uh, new folks. We'll uh, get into the lightning bug, firefly debate as well here on the uh, podcast. But uh, we had uh, guests on the farm a guest on the farm this past weekend. It's always great to uh, to see old friends. And our friend Farah came over from Arizona for a, a long weekend. Uh, Sunday, I think it was Sunday, went up to Monticello. It was, um, I, I, I love going up there. It's, it's not my favorite founding father home to go to. And actually, I still need to go to Montpelier. And I still need to go to uh, Ashland, which is James Monroe's place, which is like the next mountaintop over from Monticello. Madison's a little bit further away. Montpelier's outside of Orange. Uh, Mount Vernon is absolutely beautiful. Patrick Henry's place, Red Hill, is about 45 minutes away from Farmville. The house itself is not very big or imposing, and it's not original, but the 800 or so acres of land there is pretty stunning. Virginia is just full of these old historic homes, and Monticello is, is really neat. Um, I like going there. It's it's an interesting design uh, by Thomas Jefferson. It was a design that uh, he was really, really fond of because he replicated it a lot uh, in his other buildings. But it's it's always neat to be there. And you just, it just feels like Jefferson uh, when you're at Monticello. Uh, it, 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 you can feel his presence there in a way, at least I can anyway, that really you just don't get – um, at Mount Vernon, or at least I don't. So uh, even though Jefferson is, I've got my issues with Jefferson as a, a politician. Um, I like going to Monticello. So we went there. It was a very oppressively humid day. Storm broke as we were uh, uh, walking down from the mountain. We did the tour of the house. We walked underneath the uh, the home 
Jefferson laid out Monticello in such a way that, that very rarely would you ever see the slaves. Uh, maybe he didn't want to be reminded of the fact that, uh, that he owned slaves, but it was just laid out in such a way that the, the, a lot of the slave activity uh, went on behind the scenes. Uh, and so below Monticello, there's this, you know, really open space. There's a lot of wine cellars. And so we wandered around. We went to the, uh, the, the bookstore and I picked up uh, a few books. And I got to say, I did not choose wisely <laughs> this time around. So one of the books that I picked up was uh, Andrew Bernstein's uh, Burstein's Democracy's Muse. Uh, Democracy's Muse, How Thomas Jefferson Became an FDR Liberal, a Reagan Republican, and a Tea Party Fanatic, all the while being dead. So the, the premise behind this book is fine. Uh, the, not that Andrew Burstein needs my approval, but, but I have nothing against the premise of the book, which is that over American history, uh, both parties, a lot of varying ideologies have used Jefferson for their cause. And they've been able to do so because Jefferson, uh, you can you can go back through Jefferson's writings and you can find him taking a lot of positions that are at odds with each other over a period of time. Now, you, you won't find Jefferson really at odds with himself if you examine, you know, letters, uh, three letters written in, uh, let's say, June of 1776. Right. He'll be consistent there. But if you look at a, a letter or two, let's say, uh dealing with slavery uh, from the 1770s. And you look at, you know, a, a selection of two or three letters from uh, late in his life in the 18, early 1820s, you might find a Jefferson at odds with himself. And there are any number of issues where this comes into play. The, uh, the, the very hands-off uh, executive who uh, took extra constitutional measures to uh, conclude the Louisiana Purchase, um, the guy who, again, believed in very limited federal government, who imposed a, an embargo, a, a nationwide trade embargo uh, that, that crippled the American economy in uh, 1807. You know, Jefferson was a complex and contradictory guy in a lot of ways. So I don't have a problem with that premise. What I have a problem with was Andrew Burstein hates the Tea Party, just despises the Tea Party. Uh, and it's just... It, it, I, this is not the first book by Andrew Burstein that I have read. Uh, I think the first one was about the uh, way America celebrated the 50th anniversary of the uh, Declaration of Independence. And it was a really interesting book. Um, I completely disagree with Andrew Burstein's uh, characterizations of the, the Tea Party and uh, why the uh, Tea Party came about. He seems to think that the Tea Party came about as a result of Barack Obama. Uh, becoming president, which is an odd position for a historian to take, given that the Tea Party sprang up uh, while the presidential election was going on in response to, you might remember, uh, TARP and the uh, the idea of a federal bailout. That that was what the Tea Party was all about. It actually began, again, while President Bush uh, was in office. And it was a response to policies that were coming out of Washington at that time, uh, not a response to a presidential candidate. So I, I have I have some issues with uh, democracy's muse uh, and the conclusions that uh, Andrew Burstein draws 
but again, particularly when it comes to the Tea Party. But um, also, you know, I, I think the FDR liberals, for example, uh, seizing Jefferson's uh, a mantle of uh, you know, rugged independence and then turning that into uh, support for uh, an expanded, a greatly expanded welfare state. Um, how do they do that? You know, one of the things that Jefferson said, and it was right about the time that the Constitution was up for ratification. Jefferson wasn't a part of the writing of the Constitution. He was in France at the time. Uh, and that made him, I think, very hostile, not just skeptical, but very hostile to the uh, Constitution when he first read it. And he, uh, Madison sent him uh, a copy, and Jefferson responded uh, very, very uh, negatively to the idea of the Constitution. And uh, he put forth this theory to Madison that no generation should be bound by another generation's laws. So basically every 20 years— the law should be wiped off the books and everybody writes a new constitution. Uh, and that way you're not bound to uh, decisions made in the past. You're not bound to uh, poor decisions or, or, or debts or, uh, you know, you can't go down a, a bad road too long because every 20 years you get to hit the reset button. And Madison wrote back uh, and, and tried to caution uh, Jefferson about advancing that viewpoint uh, too vociferously, because what you're talking about ultimately in that case is is really anarchy. Uh, it is a very that is a very unconservative position, small c. It's very un-Burkean. <laughs> uh, Edmund Burke in Reflections on the French Revolution wrote, "Society is indeed a contract." Subordinate contracts for objects of mere occasional interest may be dissolved at pleasure, but the state ought not to be considered as nothing better than a partnership agreement in a trade of pepper and coffee, calico or tobacco, or some other low such concern to be taken up for a little temporary interest and be dissolved by the fancy of the parties. It is to be looked on with other reverence because it is not a partnership in things subservient only to the gross animal existence of a temporary and perishable nature. It is a partnership in all science, a partnership in all art, a partnership in every virtue and in all perfection. As the ends of such partnership cannot be obtained in many generations, it becomes a partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are to be born. That's the social contract that Edmund Burke talks about, and Thomas Jefferson's idea that, well, every 20 years you just scrap it uh, and, and start again, destroys it just obliterates the social contract because think what that one generation would do think what a generation of precious snowflakes might do in 20 years would they care about the generation yet to come maybe not and maybe if the precious snowflakes even cared maybe the generation beyond them wouldn't care about the generation after that it's not just about the uh, the reverence for those who have come before us and the acquired wisdom the accumulated wisdom that uh, we we have to gain from them uh, but if every if we're only responsible for our own 20 year period of time in uh, Jefferson's point of view, and we're to believe that uh, most people act in their own self-interest, that doesn't bode very well for the generation to come, does it? So, yeah, kind of a weird argument to uh, to make. But you know what? It seems to have worked for the uh, New Dealers. They did greatly expand government. Uh, that was actually one of the other books that I 
I read uh, this week Charles Murray's We the People, which uh, has just come out. It's a, a very interesting, provocative, I believe is the word uh, to use, a provocative take that uh, the republic, as the founders envisioned it, is uh, really no more, that uh, lawlessness abounds even within the law. And that uh, and, and he lays out a very I, I won't I won't even attempt to replicate it. Just buy the book uh, and, and read it for yourself. But uh, he lays out a case for uh, selective civil disobedience. Uh, and he has his own criteria uh, of, of what uh, regulations or laws uh, he thinks are are uh, under the purview, again, of, of civil disobedience. Uh, and he talks about the uh, the uh, history of civil disobedience in this country to uh, effort change. And he's not calling for a, um, a, a a grand revolution. He's not calling for, you know, tearing down uh, the, uh, the the buildings in Washington, D.C. He's talking about uh, reining in the regulatory state uh, and in essence. Uh, convincing the regulatory state to take a more hands-off approach uh, in our in their enforcement, uh, and to quit going after the, uh, the the little kid who's running the lemonade stand. Those those types of stories to quit going after the average American who is just trying to do their best to uh, to get along. Um, it's a it's a thought-provoking book. I uh, hope that we're going to be interviewing Charles Murray here before long on NRA News Cam and Company. In many respects, it uh, reminds me again of, of Charlton Heston's speech, Winning the Culture War, because that was his prescription for winning the culture war. Uh, he, he said, you know, how do you do this? How do you push back? How do you uh, uh, go against the, the political correctness and the people who are telling you what to say and what to do and, and what to think? Uh, and he said the answer has been with us all along, uh, it is to disobey. He said, if I might quote, what can you do? How can anyone prevail against such pervasive social subjugation? He said, the answer has been here all along. I learned it 36 years ago on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., standing with Dr. Martin Luther King and 200,000 people. You simply disobey. Peaceably, yes. Respectfully, of course. Nonviolently, absolutely. But when told how to think or what to say or how to behave, we don't. We disobey the social protocol that stifles and stigmatizes personal freedom. He said, I learned the awesome power of disobedience from Dr. King, who learned it from Gandhi and Thoreau and Jesus and every other great man who led those in the right against those with the might. Disobedience is in our DNA. We feel innate kinship with that disobedient spirit that tossed tea into Boston Harbor, that sent Thoreau to jail, that refused to sit in the back of the bus, that protested a war in Vietnam. He said, in that same spirit, I'm asking you to disavow cultural correctness with massive disobedience of rogue authority, social directives, and onerous laws that weaken personal freedom. And he said, be careful, it hurts. Disobedience demands that you put yourself at risk. Murray recognizes that as well. He talks about a, a Madison fund that would be 
sort of a massive legal defense fund for uh, individuals who who might run afoul of the regulatory state. We have, I think, you know, many, many smaller versions of this um, in, in many different aspects. What Charles Murray, I think, envisions is one big sort of conglomerate. He also talks about uh, uh, entities, uh, uh, special interest groups, uh, uh, you know, I suppose even the NRA, um, offering a, a sort of a uh, although he, the example that he uses, actually, the, the American Dental Association um, offering up a sort of insurance against the regulatory state. So, you know, if you are a dentist, you have to comply with all of these OSHA regulations. Chances are uh, you're not going to get inspected because there aren't a lot of inspectors for dentists around the country. But if you do have an inspection, chances are they're also going to find something wrong. They'll, they don't come all the way out there just to say you pass with flying colors. So uh, you pay into your insurance premium every month. And then if you do get hit with a $10,000 fine or whatever, uh, the, the group would pay it out. That's another one of the ideas that, uh, that Murray has to, again, to sort of push back uh, against the regulatory state. It's a, uh, it's a very creative book. It's a very inventive book. I think it is uh, not just an optimistic book, but uh, it uh, has, a touch of the, has a touch of the utopian about it. But it's, I, I like uh, Charles Murray's writing. He's always a, a thought-provoking guy. Uh, we the People is the new book. I would recommend that uh, far more than uh, Andrew Burstein's book on uh, Thomas Jefferson and the uh, Tea Party. I did pick up another book uh, at, at Monticello as well. Actually, I picked up two more. One was What So Proudly We Hailed, Francis Scott Key, A Life by uh, Mark Leapson. Haven't read it. Couldn't tell you anything about it. I'll let you know when I do. The other one was uh, Thomas Jefferson's Quran, Islam and the Founders by Denise Spellberg. I've only had a chance to read a few pages, so it's very unfair for me to uh, give a full review. I can just tell you, based on my on the limited amount of reading that I have done so far in this book, I think it's going to be a struggle for me. Not in terms of the scholarship, not in terms of the, the reading level, but just in terms of the conclusions that are drawn. Uh, I've, I've, I'm, I'm getting... I have some issues uh, that are starting to pop up, some some doubts that are starting to creep in the back of my head as I read this book. So we'll talk more about that on next week's 40 Acres and a Fool in the book segment. All right, when we come back after a quick break, we're going to get to your thoughts, your email. Stick around. We'll be right back with much more 40 Acres and a Fool right after this. You're listening to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Could there be some combustion involved? <laughs> I'm not sure they get the difference between combustion and pump action. It is a simulated firearm, a water gun, a squirt gun, a squirt pistol. It's a simulated firearm. You is like it, to be shot with? A, you uncut? like to be shot with a water pistol? I don't mind being on a hot summer day with my friends. Hell yeah! The morning blaze with Doc and Skip, weekday mornings six to nine Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards returns now on the Plays Radio Network. All right, one more segment here of 40 Acres and a Fool before we uh, get back to work this week. Now, in the uh, mailbag, I first of all, I have to say thank you to uh, Felicity for writing in. It's been a while since I've heard from Felicity. I'm glad to know that she and her husband, John, are still checking out the podcast. Felicity is uh, almost a neighbor, uh, and uh, she says, Sorry you're losing chickens again. A couple of weeks ago, our neighbor... Yours and ours uh, started losing lambs 
She called uh, a, a guy, Don Shoemaker, who quickly came out within a day or two, caught a large male coyote or coyote as it was heading into her pasture towards the sheep. Pretty amazing, uh, Felicity says, to have a trapper of his experience and skill living right around here. Don was the guy, uh, you may remember back, I think it was like February, uh, I went to a coyote trapping and hunting seminar. And Don was the uh, gentleman who actually put that seminar together. And it was it was really interesting. Uh, I learned a lot about coyotes. Didn't learn enough to catch one in a trap, apparently, but I did learn a lot about coyotes. So, Felicity, uh, that, that is good to know because I was the one thing that I did not ask Don uh, when I was talking to him was where he was from. I figured he was generally uh, from the Virginia area, but I didn't know that he was uh, quite as close as he is. So that's very, very good to know because after the uh, the last coyote got uh, one of our hens and Miss E saw it happen uh, from inside the house. There was nothing she could do, unfortunately, because she was inside the house. But it was a coyote. I know that uh, on Instagram, um, uh, we had a couple of folks asking, uh, including uh, a Frassy's mom. Carrie was asking if this was not a hawk because it just looked a little too clean for a uh, coyote kill. No, it was a coyote. There were there were eyewitness accounts, unfortunately. And so a lot of the response I got was, well, you need to hunt it. You need to kill it. I know. Oh, I know. I know. I'm, I'm well aware of that. Thank you. Uh, but hunting coyotes, it's difficult. And it is a, uh, it, it's, you know, it, it's, so it's, it, it's not necessarily that it's a time-consuming process. But if they're not there, they're not there. You know what I mean? So one of the things that I learned from Don Shoemaker uh, at this seminar that I went to earlier this year is that when you're coyote hunting, you're hitting a lot of different places because you're trying to find where the coyotes are. So, you know, if you're out there and you've got, let's say, an hour in the uh, morning or an hour and a half uh, in the, the evening where you can hunt, you got to hope that the coyote is around so that you can call it in. If, if they're not, man, good luck to you. They're on a pretty big circuit, uh, from what I understand. You know, they can, they can go for miles and miles on this uh, circuit. So, uh, you know, they may hit up my house, get a chicken, and then the next day I'm, I'm out there, you know, with the uh, coyote call and my rifle waiting, but they're a couple miles away. So it is, uh, it's challenging, uh, which is one of the reasons why coyotes are an increasing problem around the country. I was actually talking not long ago with, uh, I mentioned my friend Ron Bellin from Reaper Outdoors. He dropped by the studio in Farmville this week, and uh, he had been on this epic multi-state, multi-week hunting trip. And we were talking about the spring turkey season uh, because he said he thought, you know, the numbers were down. And and he also thought, where at least where he was hunting, the, uh, the deer numbers uh, were down in the fall. I know that they were down a little bit in Virginia, and there's a lot of concern that, you know, it's not just chronic wasting disease. There there are a lot of things that, uh, that, that could be happening. We had a really hard winter last year, but certainly coyotes and increased predators are a big part of the, uh, the equation here in terms of the, uh, the wildlife numbers. And, you know, all you have to do, again, is uh, talk to a small farmer, and they'll tell you about the uh, the predator problem that we have. I mean, heck, even in, you know, you're seeing coyotes show up in, in New York City and in suburban areas. That's a, uh, that, that's a, a totally different, I was going to say animal, but I guess it is actually the, 
the same animal. Hmm. A different, different problem, I guess, with the uh, the same animal. But you know, predators really are a, uh, a a a growing concern. So it's very good to know that I've got a uh, world class hunter and trapper nearby. Um, I think I'm going to be giving Don a call, Felicity, and I appreciate you uh, letting me know. And it's good to hear from you. I hope that uh, you and yours are doing well and that uh, eventually, one day, perhaps, we will uh, run into each other at a uh, restaurant around town. All right. Now, the uh, the great lightning bug versus firefly debate. I uh, regret to tell you that there was no clear consensus that emerged uh, from your emails, I, I heard both lightning bugs and fireflies. I became a little curious about this, wondering uh, what the geographic distribution of this is. I found a map from uh, Joshua Katz at the Department of Statistics at North Carolina State University. What do you call the insect that flies around in the summer and has a rear section that glows in the dark? Lightning bug, firefly, or I use them interchangeably. Interestingly enough, according to this map that uh, Joshua Katz put together, the folks who exclusively use Firefly uh, tend to be West Coast, Mountain States, and Upper Plains. So the densest distribution, California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, the uh, Sierra Nevada part of Nevada, it, it gets a little bit... Uh, more moderate as you head into uh, Arizona, New Mexico. By the time you get to the Great Plains states, with the exception of North Dakota, but South Dakota all the way down into Texas, lightning bug, firefly are used interchangeably. And then, and that's true for, for most of the rest of the country. You go down along the Gulf Coast, lightning bug, firefly used interchangeably. Uh, up in New England, Lightning bug, firefly used interchangeably, although uh, in eastern Massachusetts, around Boston area, uh, you hear firefly a little bit more for some reason. And then the lightning bug uh, concentration seems to be centered around Kentucky and Tennessee, the uh, northern half of Alabama and Mississippi, uh, West Virginia a little bit, Ohio, uh, Indiana, little bit, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a shade more, uh, folks using, I think, uh, lightning bug than, uh, lightning bug and firefly interchangeably in places like Iowa and Missouri and Arkansas. I have no idea why this is by the way, I, but, but that's the, that's the geographic breakdown. Generally speaking, West coast. Western states, they're going to say Firefly. Midwest, Gulf Coast, all the way into uh, New England, uh, upper Midwest like uh, Wisconsin and Michigan, they use both. The uh, nation's uh, midsection, the, uh, the Appalachian Mountains, uh, down into the uh, upper deep south and into the uh, lower upper Midwest, if that's such a thing. And that's where you find the lightning bugs. Now we just have to figure out why that is. All right. That is unfortunately about all the time that we have for you in this week's edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. But uh, we learned, I guess, something today, right? When we come back next week, we'll have uh, many more fun stories from the farm. Plus, 
your thoughts. Again, the email address is 40acrefool at gmail.com, and I do love hearing from you. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in this week, and until we meet again, be safe, have fun, live a little, learn a lot. We'll talk again soon here on 40 Acres and a Fool. This is 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. 